The First Amendment to the United States Constitution states, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. The First Amendment sets the tone for the relationship between the government and the people of this country. Free exchange of ideas. Freedom to write what you want. Freedom to gather. Freedom to express your opinions without fear of retaliation from the government. Freedom to practice the religion of your choice was a significant aspect of these bedrock freedoms enshrined in the First Amendment. The backdrop, at least to many of the Founding Fathers, was that religious persecution had been a problem for at least two millennia, dating back to the persecution of Jesus Christ's apostles. As 18th century constitutional scholar and Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story explained, quote, It was under a solemn consciousness of the dangers from ecclesiastical ambition, the bigotry of spiritual pride, and the intolerance of sex thus exemplified in our domestic as well as in foreign annals, that it was deemed advisable to exclude from the national government all power to act upon the subject, and the Catholic, and the Protestant, the Calvinist, and the Arminian, the Jew and the infidel, may sit down at the common table of the national councils without any inquisition into their faith or mode of worship. Religious toleration was supposed to be for everyone. Freedom of speech, freedom to exercise religion, and the prohibition against the establishment of a religion, therefore, was designed to protect religious freedom in the new country. The First Amendment was later applied to the states and not just the federal government through the incorporation doctrine stemming from the 14th Amendment. Religious freedom and the separation of church and state was guaranteed and protected by our governing foundational documents. But what exactly does the separation of church and state mean? Is it simply that the government cannot establish a religion, like the Church of England which persecuted Quakers? Who escaped its wrath by coming to America? Does it mean that the government cannot acknowledge or endorse any aspects of religious or spiritual life? Statements like, in God we trust, that we've seen on coins and dollar bills. In 1971, in Lemon v. Kurtzman, the Supreme Court held that government action must pass a three-pronged test in order to avoid violating the separation of church and state. The government action must have a secular purpose. Its principle or primary effect must be one that neither promotes nor inhibits a religion, and it must not foster excessive government entanglement with religion. Even though the Supreme Court has since rejected this test, legal battles have raged for more than 50 years. Prayer at football games, the placement of Ten Commandments in parks, funding of religious schools. One recent example involved a flag-raising program here in the city of Boston. Harold Shirtlett, director of a nonprofit organization called Camp Constitution, applied to the city of Boston to conduct a flag raising ceremony on City Hall Plaza in 2017. The purpose of the ceremony would, quote, commemorate the civic and social contributions of the Christian community. As part of the ceremony, Shirtlett wished to fly a Christian flag, which contained an image of a cross. Even though the city of Boston had never once in the course of this 12-year program rejected an application for a flag-raising program and, 
that point, had no criteria for applications to the program or evaluation thereof, Camp Constitution's request was denied. The reason, as admitted by City of Boston officials, was that it was a Christian ceremony. And city officials were, at least according to them, concerned about the separation of church and state. Camp Constitution filed suit. A federal court in Boston rejected Camp Constitution's claim and held that the city had the authority to reject the flag-raising request. This decision was affirmed by the First Circuit Court of Appeals. The Supreme Court of the United States granted certiorari to hear the case. Would flying the Christian flag on City Hall Plaza violate the Establishment Clause? Or would the refusal to fly it violate the freedom of speech? This is Shirtlift versus City of Boston. Welcome to Legal Judgments, where we tackle litigation and trial strategy by analyzing and talking about real legal cases. I'm Bob Stetson, a Boston-based trial lawyer at Bernkoff Goodman. Today we're discussing a case that involves the tension between the freedom of speech guaranteed by the First Amendment and the prohibition against the establishment of religion contained in the very same amendment. With me is Roger Gannam, Assistant Vice President of Legal Affairs for Liberty Council which represented Harold Shirtliff and Camp Constitution in this matter. Welcome, Roger. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me, Bob. Really glad to be here. So you lost at the trial court level. You lost at the appellate court level. And you apply for review to the Supreme Court. Now, in the Supreme Court, you win nine to nothing. For a unanimous decision, given the ideological diversity of this particular court, that's almost unprecedented. The court held that your client's freedom of speech rights had been abridged in violation of the First Amendment. In essence, and we can dive into the decision, some of the concurrences, but in essence, the court held that by refusing to raise the Christian flag in the context of this citywide program, Boston had engaged in viewpoint discrimination, censorship which of course is impermissible and violated your client's constitutional rights. But this was hardly a foregone conclusion. Not only had your client lost below twice, but the Supreme Court receives about 10,000 applications for certiorari like this one per year. It grants less than 100 of them, less than 1%. So you have a less than 1% chance of the Supreme Court taking a case that your client had already lost twice from a messaging perspective, from an advocacy perspective. Your petition has got to be pretty good. It's got to stick out, right? It's got to speak to at least four justices on the court who agree to grant certiorari. So as a First Amendment lawyer, I'm sure you're familiar that there are a wide range of views on this court about the scope and applicability 
of the First Amendment. So walk us through the process. Tell us about how you and the Liberty Council team approached the cert partition. And in particular, what was the messaging and who was the audience? Was there any justices or any cases that you were looking at? Or were there any groupings or blocks of justices that you designed your messaging for in order for that cert petition to stick out from the other 10,000 that came into the Supreme Court? What a great question. Certainly when we filed our cert petition, we had fresh on our minds all of the losses in the courts below because even before we, we lost summary judgment, both in the district court and at the First Circuit, we had lost our motion for preliminary injunction in the district court and in the First Circuit. So we were pretty used to losing in this case, but we knew that the facts were compelling. 284 flag raisings with zero denials over 12 years tells a story of an open forum, of a public forum where anyone and everyone can bring their flag and raise it on the city hall flagpoles. That's what Boston said in its, in its application forms is that we want to accommodate all applicants who want to use our public forums. And they list the City Hall flagpoles as one of those public forums. So we knew the facts were compelling. And that's what we focused on in framing the questions presented to the court. As many times as we could, we said 284 flag raisings with no denials, because we believe that despite the ideological diversity, which is very well defined on a lot of issues in this court, on pure free speech issues, there is much less diversity, and the court's been very good over the years. And so we knew if we could really just appeal to that sense of you know, free speech is sacrosanct, regardless of whether it's religious speech or some other kind, we were hopeful that if our petition were granted, that we could get you know, six or seven justices even to, uh, to rule in our favor. No one expected nine, but it does sort of complete the story, and I have to say a very satisfying way, that how compelling the facts were. I just don't think there was any way the Supreme Court could get away from the fact that there was censorship here. And, uh, you know, the court ruled definitively. I guess the only way it could have been better would be if all nine justices joined the same opinion. But we'll take a nine to zero decision, even if some of the reasoning was a little different uh, in any time. Absolutely. So I want to talk a little bit more about preparation. Once the Supreme Court decides to take the case, and I know there was some additional briefing, but I want to talk about oral argument. I listened to the arguments, and the case was phenomenally argued by your colleague, Matthew Staver. But even a case that ends up 9-0 in your favor, it's a thicket. It's rapid-fire questions, again, from an ideologically diverse group of some of the most brilliant and talented legal minds in our country. How did the Liberty Council team prepare for oral arguments? Well, that is a, another great question. And for me, this was my first experience taking a case, you know, through from cert petition, you know, through argument and decision. My colleague, Matt Staver, this was his third appearance in the court for oral argument. So he knew something about the process, but even so did three extensive moot court sessions with outside organizations in preparation for this case. One through the Georgetown University Law Center. They have a Supreme Court project that that moots just about every case that goes to the court based on a first come first serve basis. So we we immediately requested their assistance when our petition was granted and either we beat Boston to it or I don't know if Boston asked but so we secured their help and 
that panel that Georgetown provided itself was ideologically diverse, certainly not people who would necessarily agree with Liberty Council's positions in the various litigation that, that we were involved in. And then we also, uh, through the Heritage Foundation and through Alliance Defending Freedom, which are a couple of the, uh, the big hitter conservative law firms, think tanks in the D.C. area, they also provided just stellar moot court panels. And for about a week and a half to get through all of them, Matt subjected himself to these, uh, these moot sessions that were just blistering because these are all really smart lawyers. Many of them were Supreme Court advocates themselves and had a lot of experience in the court. And they really put him through the ringer. And through that process, the way the court formats the argument now because of COVID and remote argument, they do something they didn't used to do. And they allow an uninterrupted two-minute opening. And then they do the questions sort of in series, going justice by justice, so that you're not interrupted you know, at any moment by any or every justice who wants to ask a question. And through the process of that, that the moot court sessions, um, Matt completely changed his two-minute opening from what we thought was a strong opening and then going through all the questions and getting the feedback of all these really stellar constitutional lawyers and advocates. It looked completely different at the end of it, but that process was so valuable to helping Matt sharpen his answers that uh, when he went to argument, and I couldn't even go in the courtroom because the court is still limited to just two lawyers, no clients, and uh, so not everyone can go in and watch. So my colleagues and I and some of our staff were in our DC office kind of huddled around the, uh, the monitor just listening. But there wasn't a question they asked that he wasn't prepared for by those moot sessions. So I can't say enough how valuable that, uh, that process was. It wasn't comfortable, but it really helped to refine the argument and the points. And, and in the end, I think it really paid off. There was just nothing he wasn't prepared for. Well, and, and certainly the results speak for themselves. So, so let's talk about the oral argument itself and some of the substantive issues. A good portion of the oral argument focused on this issue of control. So the free speech clause, it only applies when a private individual is speaking. If the government acts in a manner that discriminates against the private individual, that's the type of censorship that is impermissible under the First Amendment. But if the government is speaking and not a private individual, the free speech clause doesn't apply. So in this case, the city of Boston, at least as I understood their argument, was arguing that this flag raising program was a form of government speech, not individual private speech. And therefore, the free speech clause didn't apply at all. And there were a lot of questions at oral argument that focused on the control of this particular program. What does a city have to do to ensure that their program is a form of government speech? How much control is required? The lawyer from the Solicitor General's office says the difference is between you know, hosting an open mic, uh, which would be a form of private speech that's protected, versus you know, organizing a symposium where you know, the government sort of comes up with the agenda, has a list of invited speakers, and there's some element of control. What, in your opinion, is a sufficient level of control to constitute government speech and I also want to point out that one of the reasons I'm asking this question is because you're here in person. You came in from Florida. You had a great victory for Camp Constitution and your clients. And you're going to be attending the flag raising ceremony at Boston City Hall in about an hour and a half. And I'm aware that the city of Boston just changed their program. I know that you haven't had an awful lot of time to evaluate it, but on the issue of control, 
whatever your answer is, what's a sufficient level of control just based on your cursor review? I'm not going to hold you at anything. Sure. Does Boston's new program satisfy that test? It would seem that what Boston has proposed for its new program, which essentially is that no flag gets raised unless approved by a mayoral proclamation or a resolution by the city council, or it has to be a flag on an approved list, something like the whatever the nations of the world are as recognized by the United Nations. And in truth, that would be very consistent with most of the flag raisings that had occurred in the past. Most of the time, the private group that raised its flag was some kind of affinity group for another country or maybe a region of the world. And there were, it was a cultural celebration, but there were too many other private groups that weren't countries, for example, the Metro Credit Union or the Juneteenth Observation Group or the Battle of Bunker Hill Commemoration Group, all these private groups that weren't you know, specifically countries that were allowed to raise their flags. It, it made it pretty clear in the past that it was an all-comers policy until Camp Constitution came along. I think the new policy will likely satisfy probably all nine of the justices that Boston is taking steps to make it very clear that the flags flown on its flagpole are Boston speaking and not the speech of the private groups. And that's really the issue that this case boils down to. When we talk about the government speech doctrine and the forum doctrine, the question that has to be answered ultimately is who is speaking. Some of the concurrences pointed out that that the way that the court, the majority opinion, Justice Breyer's opinion, handled this case still you know, leaves that question kind of under the surface a little bit by focusing on control. I, I think it was Justice Gorsuch uh, or maybe Justice Alito in his concurrence pointed out that, well, censorship is also a form of government control. So how much control the government has over speech doesn't always tell the story about who it is that's speaking. But I think that by Boston making it clear by proclamation and resolution and a published set of standards that say, you know, Boston wants to fly these flags so that whenever they're flown, you, you can be sure it's us speaking and not someone else. That makes it clear. And I don't think we would be here today if that were Boston's policy before. Because, you know, we acknowledged early on, as I think everyone has to, that, you know, Boston can fly whatever flags it wants to on its flagpoles. This was only an issue because Boston opened it up to all comers and said anyone and everyone can apply to fly a flag and we'll do our best to accommodate it as long as, you know, the time works, for example, um, until this Christian flag came along and they said no for the first time in 12 years. That's why we're here because Camp Constitution just wanted the same access that everyone else got. Camp Constitution never would have dreamed of approaching Boston that had no flag-raising program and insisting on Boston letting them raise their flag. There's no justification for that, and that, that wouldn't have ever happened. So I think the new policy will probably be constitutional. I have no doubt Boston's put a lot of thought into it, given the, uh, the Supreme Court's decision. And I do have to say that throughout this litigation, you know, I attribute nothing but, but good faith to the city and how it conducted itself and how it communicated its policy. I think it was a misunderstanding of the law when Boston you know, took two months to decide whether or not to approve Camp Constitution's request. I think the religious nature of their request, it, it caused them hesitation. The commissioner of property development, when he testified, said, I didn't think it was right to raise a religious flag on city property. And that was based really on a misunderstanding of the Establishment Clause, the idea that, well, if we're the government, we can't do anything that even looks like we're aiding religion. But the Supreme Court has been pretty clear over the years that a neutral policy that treats everyone the same, just because a religious group 
also benefits from that policy as much as anyone else, that's not an establishment clause violation. In fact, that's the, exactly the kind of neutrality that the First Amendment is trying to encourage. So I think Boston made a big mistake by assuming that the establishment clause somehow prevented them from accepting Camp Constitution's flag. But once that decision was made, the city committed to it. They went all in. And the only way that argument works is if it's government speech, because if it's private speech, of course, there is no establishment clause violation. So, so the city, I think, backed itself into this government speech argument, and then they had to live with it because, you know, they probably didn't expect the Supreme Court to grant cert, because as you said, it's such a rare occurrence for any given case. But, uh, but they ran with it. And I think it was because at the end of the day, it was just implausible that Boston was speaking through these 284 approvals with no denials. And that's why we got the nine to zero decision we got. Even now, though, there's still some question as to how will the court in the future decide this question of who is speaking and the you know, government speech versus public forum context. Well, I want to kind of follow up about that city of Boston um, misunderstanding. Of course, you heard my introductory comments about the history of the First Amendment, Lemon versus Kurtzman. One of the concurrences in the Shirtliff case authored by Gorsuch goes into detail about how Lemon versus Kurtzman has been rejected by the Supreme Court, misunderstood, etc. Almost laments how the ghosts of Lemon continued to haunt governmental policy in this area throughout the country, really. So how many of, I guess this is a two-part question, how many of these legal battles stem from this misunderstanding, from the continued belief that Lemon versus Kurtzman somehow guides or governs the separation between church and state? And really, how clear is the current state of Supreme Court jurisprudence in this area? In other words, is there a clear separation between church and state? You know, if so, what is it? Or if there's not, what should it be? Well, that's a really loaded question, but I think it's good to focus on Lemon because the Shirtliff case, in a sense, was the final nail in the coffin of the Lemon test. Because shortly afterwards, we had the decision in the Coach Kennedy versus Bremerton schools case where it was pronounced by or announced by the majority of the court definitively that we don't follow Lemon anymore. And they cited to Shirtliff in that, in that discussion. So the Lemon test, it, it provided what on one hand might seem like a convenient test for evaluating whether any, any government action violates the Establishment Clause or really any government expression violates the Establishment Clause. But as was pointed out in the, in the concurrences, it's really just been a mess from the beginning. And it provides too convenient a way for an ideologically inclined judge or official to say, well, we're not going to allow this religious speech or activity because if you apply these lemon factors, it fails the test and it violates the Establishment Clause. When, as you know, as we, as I pointed out earlier, the Constitution requires neutrality towards religion by the government, not hostility towards religion or removal of religion from the public square. So the lemon test too often was an easy place to turn to to get the result that the official or perhaps judge wanted. 
you know, and I can't say what the motivation by the district judge in this case or the First Circuit, but the ghost of women was still looming large in, in those decisions. I mean, it was expressly cited by the district court, not so much by the First Circuit, but the idea there that you have to make policy based on what an observer might think was the speaker, it really doomed Camp Constitution from the beginning because after all, City hall flagpoles are usually used for the city's own flags and the city's own speech. There was even a, a group of municipalities that filed an amicus brief in the in the Supreme Court case that said, you know, we'd like to, you know, preserve our ability to decide what goes up on our flagpoles. Boston is really different from all of us by the amount of access that it has granted to the public. And so I think that was helpful to show, look, yeah, we Cities generally use their flagpoles for government speech, but the Constitution or the Supreme Court has recognized that the city can put any of its property to a new or novel use. The city can open any of its property for private expression if it wants to. And if, you, if the city does that, a passerby might be confused about who's speaking if it's, for example, a flagpole where you're used to seeing the city's own flag up there. But I think the, the short-lived opinion really got away from that idea that that the passerby gets to dictate whether it passes the muster under the establishment clause, or whether it's government speech or private speech. The fact is, you know, private actors were speaking all these years on the city hall flagpole because the city invited them to do so. And if a passerby was confused about that shouldn't dictate, you know, whether the constitution is violated or not. And of course, we made the argument that, uh, you know, if you've ever seen the City Hall Plaza, you know, it's seven acres of brick with these flagpoles in front of this, this you know, brutalist style City Hall. There, there really is nowhere where you can see these flagpoles where you couldn't also see what was going on at the base of the flagpoles, which was always some kind of flag raising event. So I don't even think that the public or a passerby would be confused that it was necessarily the city speaking when you see this kind of event going on at the base of the flagpole. But there's really nowhere in Boston where you can see one of these flagpoles without being in the plaza itself because you know, it's surrounded by tall buildings and, and City Hall itself. So we don't even think that argument worked, you know, that the passerby would be confused. But at the end of the day, the really important question is who is speaking? And Boston's policy made it clear it was inviting private persons, private organizations to speak until it said no to Camp Constitution. And that's why, it, and that's why you know, we're here today. They made a mistake. And that denial, if they had simply allowed Camp Constitution to raise its flag, they'd probably still have the same flag raising program today. And I don't think they would be overrun with, with religious organizations wanting to raise their flag because, you know, after all, Camp Constitution wanted to talk about the civic contributions of Boston's Christian community yeah, over throughout history. Not everyone wants to do that. You know, not everyone, you know, has a flag to raise. And so I don't think it's the case that that Boston would have suffered by letting Camp Constitution do this once, even if they let Camp Constitution do it, you know, every uh, every year. There, after all, there is a day called Constitution Day and Citizenship Day on September 17th every year as a matter of federal law. And who better than Camp Constitution to have a flag raising to uh, to commemorate that event? And of course, the the ironies are so thick in this case that, you know, in a city that is sometimes nicknamed, you know, the cradle of liberty, you know, you can follow the freedom trail around town that it would deny an organization called Camp Constitution you know, its constitutional right to, uh, to raise a flag. It's really, it just makes the win that much more satisfying, but I think important for the country for First Amendment law as a whole, because it really gets rid of or hastened the death of the Lemon Test once and for all. 
and allows the court to be freed from a rigid test and instead allows it to look at all the circumstances and make a more principled decision, you know, free from those strictures of a three-part test. So before I let you go off to the flag raising program, I want you to tell the listeners about Liberty Council and how did Liberty Council get involved in this case? You know, what did it see in this case? How did it come to you guys? And what criteria did you guys use to select this case as something that you'd be involved with? Well, we get a lot of calls from from people who believe that they're either their free speech rights or uh, particularly religious liberties have been violated. We have a great intake department. My colleague, Richard Mast, does a great job. He's an attorney who sort of receives a lot of these calls and emails on the front end and makes a decision to send it up the chain. In this case, the facts were very compelling. And when, when Richard you know, heard the story from Hal Shirtliff and Camp Constitution, I think he was pretty sure that this is the kind of case that we'd want to take on. Because you know, given the fact that we can't take every case, you know, we do try to take a case that has good facts and has the potential to, to set a precedent. And this case was really attractive for those reasons. And plus, you know, Hal's a great guy. And, and you know, the, just everything about the case said that it's the kind of thing that we want to work on. And to be honest, the litigation was very straightforward. We filed a motion for preliminary injunction. It was denied. We took a deposition. We did one document request to the city. We created a factual record and, and really filed a statement of undisputed facts at the summary judgment stage that we worked on with the city's lawyer, where there really was no dispute about what happened in this case and what the policy was. So we were able to create a very clean factual record that I think, you know, carried the day when, when it was presented to the Supreme Court. But, but, you know, sometimes we just get a sense for this case that has the opportunity to go all the way and make a precedent. And for an organization like ours, we're a nonprofit and we exist to, to advance free speech and religious liberty. You know, that's what we're looking for is a case that will make a difference at the end of the day. We never charge our clients a penny for our representation. So we're completely donor funded. We depend on like-minded people, you know, contributing to our cause. But that also gives us a lot of freedom to make decisions in a litigation that might not be, you know, financially rational for the lawyer who has to bill his client for everything that's done. This was a long fight. We filed suit in 2018. We got a decision in 2022. That was not inexpensive to, to devote those hours and in all the preparation for the Supreme Court. But it really paid off at the end of the day, and it was well worth it. And so uh, we're just you know, thrilled to have the opportunity to represent great clients like Hal and Camp Constitution. And, and we you know, look forward to having the opportunity to do it again. This is really the last question, Roger. If folks want to support Liberty Council, how can they go about doing it? Our website is lc.org. And at, there you can read about the, all of the cases and matters that we're involved in. If so inclined, there's even a, a way to, to give to Liberty Council's cause to enable us to continue doing this kind of constitutional litigation. And, uh, and our goal is always to, to make a difference in our cases. And uh, we expect that uh, we will be at least applying to the Supreme Court again in the near future. And, and hopefully we'll be able to get a result as good as this one. Well, thank you so much, Roger, for joining me today. And congratulations on a great victory. Well, thank you very much. Enjoy being here. That's our show. Check out the show notes for more information on today's case. Also, if you are involved in an interesting civil case or know about one that you think would be a good topic for the show, reach out to me at rstetson at earncofflegal.com. That's rstetson at 
B-E-R-N-K-O-P-F legal.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a positive review. Follow us on Instagram at Legal Judgments, on Twitter at Legal underscore Judgments, and on LinkedIn at Legal Judgments Podcast. And don't forget that E in Judgments.